everybody. Uh, Martin Keenan here this week, and we're going to be talking to Associate Professor Jennifer Meddings, who works in the Ann Arbor healthcare system, uh, works with the University of Michigan Medical School, works in the Department of Pediatrics there as well, but is well known for papers, uh, along with Sanjay Saint, on reducing castor-associated and device-associated infections. And today we're going to be talking about a very recent paper published in Infection Control in Hospital Epidemiology called What Hospitals Are Doing to Prevent common device-associated infections during coronavirus 2019. So thank you very much, Jennifer, for sparing the time to have a chat to me today. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Okay, now this is a piece of work you've been doing for some while, so could, you know, over a number of years. Could you actually just outline what you've been up to previous to this paper here? Uh, Definitely. Um, So this is a project where um, infection preventionists from a national uh, random survey of many uh, U.S. acute care hospitals have been surveyed every four years about the common practices that are being done to prevent uh, catheter-associated urinary tract infection, central line-associated bloodstream infection, and um, ventilator-associated events. And we've been um, in the most recent wave um, was uh, published and it was involving the 2021 uh, data, certainly in the midst of the pandemic. You got a reasonable return rate on this one compared with previous, or do you think that the actual pandemic affected your response rate? Because you had had some quite large response rates in the past, hadn't you? Yeah, so the previous uh, response rates had ranged from 59 to 72%. The, the most recent uh, survey from 2021 was 47%. Um, as we know, uh, certainly infection preventionists have been very stressed and busy during the pandemic, um, as well as um, there have been a lot of shortages of different types of medical staff. So um, we think that might have affected uh, some of the response rate. I also noticed you changed from VAP to VAE. Do you think that had an impact on the actual interventions or the interventions are pretty similar, aren't they? Did that have any difference, do you think? I don't think so. The interventions are pretty similar. It's just a matter of semantics and terminology, particularly um, in how our um, how the events get um, reported for public reporting and comparing hospital performance. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I noticed that the uh, antimicrobial mouth rinse had dropped ever so slightly, although not significantly. Because I know the guidance has recently changed away from using chlorhexidine routinely in that area, hasn't it? Do you think that is likely to be reflected in a future survey, just from your, you know, anecdotally? I think so. Uh, these surveys tend to be pretty reflective of um, what guidelines have recommended, mm. um, particularly when, um, and then also availability of new terminologies, new technologies, I mean, when they um, come out okay. and how quickly they get adopted. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I noticed that the, uh, Use of an antimicrobial dressing or a, a patch has actually steadily increased over the years as well, isn't it? And there's always a little bit of lag between an innovation and the adoption, but it's, it, that seems to be almost universal now. I think the other thing that we always keep in mind when we're in, and we're curious about when surveying these different adoptions of technologies is how many of them are really simply a change in a a product that they buy, those are, um, uh, you know, sort of much easier to implement mm-hmm. um, rather than a change in a practice at the bedside that particularly might require more regular use um, at the bedside um, by a clinician. And um, particularly, uh, we're interested in those because in the pandemic, um, you know, there was concern about time of clinicians at the bedside, particularly before um, vaccines were readily available and adopted mm-hmm. um, uh, for bedside care tasks, um, whereas that likely would we don't think would have affected um, simply technologies or switch out of products. Yeah, okay. And I noticed many of the interventions are often around the insertion procedure rather than ongoing care. 
Now, we've heard Hugh and Susan Huang a number of times in, in the UK over the years, and I've heard a speak around the world talking about cholestine bathing for both Clabsy and um, ventilator-associated pneumonia, but that isn't in the survey. Is that because it's almost ubiquitous, or is it just something you hadn't considered adding into it? The bathing uh, is something that we hadn't um, uh, asked about previously. Hmm. Um, we're always considering uh, new components to add to the survey, um, with um, each additional one. It's always a matter of even a question of uh, how many um, do we ask about. Okay. Yeah, okay. But it's also really quite ubiquitous in, in the U.S. Um, now. So. Yeah, okay. So that's what I was wondering, Red. Is it so ubiquitous there's almost no point in asking the question because you wouldn't have any historic data anyway. So can we go on to talk about catheters? Because now I know that's been an interest of yours for quite some time, to say the least. And there has been some significant changes in this. So could you just outline a couple of the changes and we can have a chat about why we think that might be the case? Sure. So particularly regarding um, uh, uh, catheters um, that are catheter practices used for urinary tract um, infection. Um, in the past, we were able to uh, survey about uh, technologies that have been around longer, such as portable bladder scanner um, use, uh, catheter reminders, um, and initiated discontinuation, which a lot of my work has um, focused on an intermittent catheter um, use. Um, and those actually did have uh, lower uses compared to previous surveys. And you'll notice, notice that a lot of those actually are lower use than even the ones that are used for CLABSI, the different practices for CLABSI. Mm. And this has been um, something that we, um, this is one of the reasons I'm so focused on catheter-associated UTI, because it's it's harder to get these uh, strategies adopted. But there was a significant uh, use, a regular use of a newer catheter called external urinary catheters mm. um, for women. We weren't able to we, we had not previously surveyed for that because that was actually a, a much newer technology. Um, many hospitals in the U.S. Um, didn't have them available. Um, they probably started coming onto the market about uh, 2019. Mm. And so uh, this was the first time we had surveyed that. We found that was very interesting because this is a technology that it's a very new technology. It is used for... Um, trying to use it as an alternative to placing those indwelling catheters. But compared to other uh, strategies, uh, it currently has the least uh, evidence-based um, evidence, I mean, literature um, evidence uh, to support its routine um, use. But it has been rather quickly adopted um, by hospitals. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I don't remember seeing any RCTs or any cost effectiveness. I mean, I know the logic is there. And sometimes if the logic is there, then the evidence will hopefully follow. Um, do you know of any large-scale studies or any studies at all going on that may give us the answer to that so that it could go into a guideline? Because, I mean, obviously avoiding an indwelling catheter is yep. a good one. Uh, Seagull smiling. So obviously yeah. you may be doing something in this area. Yeah. So uh, one of my uh, graduate students uh, recently led a systematic review and meta-analysis that um, hopefully will be published very soon. So hopefully I'll be able to share it with you at the next um a conference, and I'll be able to send it to you when it is published. And uh, really, the uh, issue that's happening with external female catheters is that there's not great standards now in how the data gets reported um, from studies to them um, and which outcomes people are actually reporting. So, mm. for example, although we have you know a nice National Safety Healthcare Network definition for catheter-associated um, UTI, um, there really is no clear definition for what would you call a UTI associated with a female external urinary catheter? Yeah. Um, as a, a potential, um, outcome you should look at when, when, uh, trying to use a new, there is no current standard, uh, definition for that. The other thing that seems to greatly impact the, um, 
uh, value um, of these technologies as far as reducing county rates is really which population is chosen to implement them. We have seen a wide range of, um, uh, uh, and I understand this also on different site visits we've performed in hospitals for other projects. Um, there are some hospitals where they use them routinely in all uh, patients that are recovering from anesthesia. Um, all women that are recovering from anesthesia, say after cardiac catheterization or uh, surgical procedures to try to reduce, you know, incontinence um, before they're uh, fully awake. And that's more of a, a very broad use of this. And these are patients that probably would not have received an indwelling catheter otherwise. Okay. Um, and then there's other hospitals that really restrict the external catheter use. Really, it's the patient had to have qualified really more for um, an indwelling catheter to start, but not for retention. And it's in place. So really the impact I'm unlikely that the safety um, of these catheters currently ranges widely based upon which population they're being um, used in. And that is still yet to be defined on which population is appropriate. We um, have been interested in this because when we published our Annals of Internal Medicine article on the Ann Arbor criteria for appropriateness of urinary catheter use, we also had to find appropriate criteria for using external catheters. So this actually, the published criteria applies to both men and women. And a lot of what I do when I do um, site visits and talks is actually re-educate people about when is it appropriate to use an external catheter? Because we see common mistakes made, such as people will use it for patients with retention, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it it won't it won't uh, release um, a urine that's not spontaneously voided. Mm. So it's certainly an evolving area, and I hope to be able to share that um, manuscript with you very soon. That actually details all what has been studied in the literature to date. Okay, I mean that is a, I noticed that the use of male condom drainage also went up. Now. You say that in the paper that it's possibly due to patient preference and comfort, and I absolutely would get that. And I'm just wondering if that also would be an issue um, with a female external catheter. Do do you know from your experience, do people find it comfortable uh, to uh, wear these devices? So unlike the external male catheter, where a patient can actually be um, mobile um, and walk around um, with this device attached. Um, for the female um, catheter, it's really meant for women that are um, really immobile in bed because it does not work. Right. Um, it would leak if the patient is moving around. It's as uh, it's not really attached with a seal okay. to prevent urine leakage. Uh, otherwise, if you look at the uh, literature. Um, and when they have asked patients about this in the few studies that report it, mm. um, it seems to be comfortable, particularly compared to incontinence issues. But there also is no great standard way of assessing this. And one of the things that one of the concerns that arises with this device is because it is positioned next to the external um, female um, genitalia mm. is is there is really trying to assess the risk for a traumatic injury from the external catheter, such okay. as injuries related to pressure from the suction. Mm. And so that is something that um, also inspired us to look at this uh, systematic review. And one thing we found is people aren't recording that, um, <laughs> reporting right. that in many of these studies. Right. They really focused on what was the county rate before yeah. and after we implemented this. But there's no uh, great standards right now for, for reporting such incidents, and we believe a new device like this would um, it, it warrants that it warrants a you know a, a clear evaluation, and mm. particularly because there's some patients that are likely higher risk for skin breakdown. Sure, um, from these devices yes. than others. Yeah, you don't want other intended consequences that uh, that people weren't really huh? looking for. Uh, I also noticed that mm-hmm. stop orders and nurse initiated discontinuation dropped almost to the level actually of. Uh, the 2013. Do you think, I mean, you've mentioned in the paper 
that people maybe aren't reviewing the patients as often or there, there aren't the, maybe the ward round as that you would get. Do you think that is at the root of that rather than a desire to say we're not going to put a stop order on? When we uh, were surveying um, this, we were, you know, hypothesizing and, and you know, what, what could we possibly see? On the one hand, with the rapid adoption of electronic medical records um, throughout the U.S., and many of them have come down to just a few companies, so there's more of a standard, it's more easier for them to implement such a stop order. We thought, oh, maybe we would see this rapidly adopted and it might be um, capping, you know, topping off at very high numbers. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, one of the kind of, one of the things that we realize is, of course, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, removal removal of uh, urinary catheters, particularly in patients with um, incontinence, could result in uh, the patient needing more bedside um, nursing care mm. um, related to care of incontinence, which would require more um, entries um, into the room which, of course, they were trying to minimize um, in the pandemic, particularly before we had good treatments um, and vaccination rates. So it'll be very interesting to see if that rebounds mm. uh, further out from the pandemic. The other thing we realized, of course, is that in the pandemic, uh, one of the things we, um, you know, is that a lot of these patients were suffering from critical illness. Um, they often had central lines. And uh, um, and so those likely received, you know, very routine care that um, because those also only received needed to have care, you know, a few times a day as opposed to with urinary incontinence. And yeah. so um, we actually um, I've actually wondered if uh, urinary catheter care simply got lower priority in the pandemic, um, given that. Mm. I suppose the concern would be once something's dropped out of you, once they've got used to almost not doing stop orders, it might be you're almost back to square one and starting to get people to think about using them again because staff turnover and things like that. That's that's a concern, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, and exactly. And then um, when I have um, been given talks um, recently, actually even in the pandemic, um, I was um, really helping them focus on why they should care about urinary catheter care, even in the midst of a pandemic. Mm. Um, and uh, so several things that we focused on was um, these patients were still at risk for very resistant um, microorganisms that would make their care even more complex. They had very long hospitalizations, and mm. so um, which often was associated with longer catheter use. So that puts them at higher risk. Um, the other thing is um, catheter use, as um, my colleague Dr. Saint uh, has published before, is a one point restraint. Um, and so it uh, could increase these patients' risks of deep venous thrombosis um, related to immobility. And we already knew that patients with COVID were at higher risk for that. Mm. And the other thing I'd like people to um, remember is that often these patients were on anticoagulation um, related to their higher risk of blood clots you know, during COVID and during their hospitalization. And catheters um, are uh, associated with higher you know, risks of hematomas um, I'm sorry, actually hematuria mm -hmm. um, and could lead to other complications um, prolonging that patient's stay. So there were a lot of reasons to avoid it yeah. um, uh, if you could. Yeah, I mean... And one of the reasons... Yeah, go yeah, ahead. I mean, I was just going to say, that, I mean, in every prevalence study around the world, Corti comes out as number two generally to non-ventilator-associated HAP. And to me, these are both avoidable with good nursing care. And during the pandemic, I'm not sure the basic standards, there was a lot of missed care, I think, uh, and certainly anecdotally in the UK here, we don't do work on non-ventilator-associated HAP um, from a surveillance perspective. But anecdotally, there was more, uh, which meant people got more antibiotics. And we've actually seen quite a reasonable increase in clostridium difficile infections, clostridioides, depending on what part of the world you're in. So there's a knock-on effect here, isn't there? Because if you get an antibiotic, then that's a risk of some other problem occurring. And yet these are nursing interventions, which I, th I think... yes. I think they fell down a bit during the pandemic. 
They did. And I think, um, and the other thing, of course, that we keep in mind is that, you know, certainly the nurses um, um, in many institutions were at um, uh, sort of, they had more uh, time at the bedside with these patients um, and they were at uh, higher risk for acquiring um, COVID, um, particularly before um, vaccines. And um, there were also even difficulties recruiting enough nurses. Yes. Um um, for these, uh, caring for these patients. And so uh, uh, we also know that, um, particularly in the heat of the pandemic, um, uh, patient nurses likely also had more patients than usual mm-hmm. um, um, in their daily um, work. And so uh, this is something that um, we are hoping will certainly um, improve once we get back to uh, uh, sort of post-pandemic um, standards. We're still, you know, in transition uh, here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it is something that I'm certainly emphasizing um, in all the talks I'm giving. Um, and trying to get um, things back on on board with that. I mean, I can tell you, like at our institution, we certainly still had, you know, use of bladder scanner, catheter reminders, intermittent catheterization. These remained easily available technologies. Um, Our order sets um, Mm. did not uh, decline. Yes, we had catheter reminders and discontinuations for everybody, technically, because it's actually automated. Um, in our order sets, Mm -hmm. um, that when you order a catheter, unless you actually opt out, for nurse-initiated um, discontinuation. Um, but we also saw um, increased rates in county, um, as many um, hospitals did in the U.S. And we are still, we're taking different approaches um, uh, trying to retackle that issue. And we, we think it's likely and due to the different priorities of tasks and uh, and changes in staffing that occurred with the, with yeah. the pandemic. Um, that was certainly also explained why intermittent castorization dropped down from yes. just under half to just over a third. So that's something you'd want to get yep. back to normally. I mean, 2025 is going yeah. to be a very interesting year when you repeat it again, isn't it? I'm almost excited yep. to see those results to see if there's any change. And um, can, yeah. I, can I bring you back to something you mentioned earlier on? So a significant reason for a castor going in in many people is um, retention of urine. And I did a little qualitative piece of work years ago just for my uh, for a master's in clinical research, and I didn't really publish it apart from an abstract. But it was um, it was that nurses were primary instigators of inserting a castor for retention uh, with thinking about how can I help this person because they're in distress. But what they weren't uh-huh. thinking about was why the person had retention and were there any things okay. they could have done to have prevented that in the first place so you fi- is that what your findings are and because i don't think there's enough education on retention and preventing a retention for, for example in constipation you know the number of times they right. they've taken they put a catheter in and then the next day found the person's completely impacted but then they don't take the catheter out you know could, could we do yep. more in that area do you think Oh, I uh, definitely uh, think so. Um, and actually, one of my um, other projects, which hopefully we'll be able to share the publications with you for it, I'll actually send, I can send you um, the website for it, um, Martin, um, is uh, uh, one of the projects that's kept me very busy in the pandemic um, is a new collaborative where we are actually standardizing diagnosis and management of urinary retention yeah. um, in a set of um, uh, hospitals in the Michigan Surgical Quality um, Collaborative. And these are patients um, that have been receiving um, elective general surgery procedures. These are not your ICU patients. Yeah. And uh, so what um, our team did was actually we worked with nurses, uh, urologists, uh, surgeons, uh, internists, um, and actually developed um, an algorithm because one of the things that we 
uh, saw um, and when we surveyed um, these clinicians ahead of time was that it was a bit of the wild, wild west with urinary manage- urinary <laughs> retention management as far as which, you know, um, which symptoms do you catheterize for? If you bladder scan, how what does the volume have to be before you catheterize? Do you catheterize with intermittent straight catheter versus a Foley? Um, when do you recheck, you know, that bladder scanner? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that can lead to um, unnecessary catheterization because we could see in some places they would catheterize for 50 or 75 cc's, which is actually a very low um, urine amount. In other places, they would wait until um, 800, which is um, very, very high. And so um, one of our projects has actually been standardizing this management. And so we actually developed new tools uh, with an algorithm um, that our hospitals are putting right on their bladder scanner for walking them visually through if the patient has symptoms or not, um, or if they... and uh, when do you bladder scan and, and what volumes should you use, which catheter should you use, and even um, identifying patients that are higher risk for trauma, like which patients may need a coup de catheter to avoid trauma um, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's uh, it's a big focus of mine right now okay. is trying to make sure people diagnose and manage retention correctly. And then we also do a lot of education about please remember that external catheter is not appropriate for retention um, because <laughs> uh, it simply will not manage no. that. And and you are absolutely correct that particularly when we've interviewed our nurses and we're actually incorporating this into our algorithms, is making sure that they do the non-catheter strategies to manage retention, mm. such as ambulating that patient, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, certainly man- helping them manage their um, bowels, um, getting cues for them, um, uh, and trying to do this, not just scanning them or not, because a lot of times these are immobile patients, yeah. you know, um, yeah. sort of um, yeah. uh, because they just had surgery or just been admitted. And so um, uh, these and then the other thing we talk about, and this is actually still a bit controversial, is when do you consider, you know, trials of medicines that are used for uh, benign uh, prostate hyperplasia, you know, to help manage that retention and which patients versus who should you chat with urology first before you try these. And so that's actually been a, a, a large focus of my work in the pandemic. Um, oh, I'll definitely so. put that website on the on the podcast information because I think people, because you, you do wonder, hang on, right, this person's got 800 mils. Uh-huh. So in goes an indwelling. Why not uh-huh. do an intermittent and investigate the cause before you actually go to indwelling? Because if suddenly uh-huh. you find out they're completely impacted, then you wouldn't maybe need to go that, down that route if you yep. could possibly avoid yep. it. So, okay, fantastic. I really like that piece of it. Um, just lastly, then, I did notice that um, the use of silver Foley catheters has gone down quite dramatically. It's gone up, well, up to nearly half and then down to 20 is that because okay. the evidence base really hasn't appeared? And could I also ask you about what practices are? Uh, my colleague Brett Mitchell from Australia would love to have been on this, but he's on a flight from Japan at the moment. Uh, he wonders what about what you use to clean the meatus with prior to catheterization, and is there a standard practice that you would recommend, or is is there standard practices in the in in uh, in America because that isn't uh, in part of your survey? Sure. So as as I sort of alluded to before, when um, when there is a new strategy that's simply a technology that you can switch out, um, you know, from a regular catheter to a silver catheter, they tend to get very quickly adopted mm. um, worldwide, even before the literature um, is quite available to support it. This was a technology we believe that this is why um, this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, we could even see this in um, uh, lower resource countries because it was cheaper than staffing. Um, increasing staffing, <laughs> right, but okay. they could simply buy the the technology. But there was an RC um, that came out, and I believe Pickett was the first author of that. That actually did demonstrate that these catheters um, really had did not have significant improvements mm. um, in catheter associated UTI. Once that became available, 
um, then uh, uh, certainly there was less evidence for supporting um, uh, more routine use of these catheters, which are more expensive, um, which certainly I'm sure led um, uh, many hospitals to realize uh, they couldn't justify the cost um, of of such a device. Okay. As far as so... um, um, and that's actually what happened in institutions that I'm familiar with. It mm-hmm. really became too. Um, sometimes they still will have a few, you know, available for a patient that they really are, you know, they're so high risk. You know, these are often these um, bone marrow transplant patients, but when they realize the evidence is not uh, that strong, but it's, you know, rather than using it more um, uh, broadly. But that yeah. we believe is what happened to the adoption okay. um, of that uh, sort of uh de-escalation of adoption okay. um, for that um, device. As far as what is more uh, routine for meadal um, cleaning, it's primarily uh, uh, depends upon the kit that you have. Some of them have more um, chlorhexidine and others actually still have the povidine, um, uh, iodine um, washes um, for that. Okay. Um, but it really depends upon the kit that you're um, using. But it would be using a form this- of antiseptic though, uh, antiseptic cleanser of- ranging. Okay. That's useful. Thank okay. you very much. Okay, well, we generally try and keep these to around the half an hour. We're approaching that now. So I want to thank you so much for sparing the time. It's been fascinating. I could talk to you for hours. And when you publish some of these other papers, I'm afraid I'm going to be back to you because it's always a good discussion. I'd be happy to chat. And this is a yeah. this is a, an area where I think big improvements can be made. You know, it's it's been almost years of not huge amounts of progress, really. Um Technologies are coming on to help us a bit, and I'll be interested to see the papers on the uh, external female device because I think that has uh, quite a lot of potential. So yep. fascinating. But- and we s- strongly encourage. We this is a device that many hospitals are are uh, newly using, and it's it's sort of an experiment in each everyone's hospitals these days. Um, we strongly recommend people to collect data on it about not just their you know, how it compares to their um, indwelling catheter use. We're actually uh, encourage people to publish, did it actually reduce their use Mm -hmm. of indwelling catheters in their hospital? Or is it just an additional set of patients that are suddenly getting external catheters that wouldn't have gotten the indwelling catheters before? And particularly if they are able to um, collect data and publish it uh, regarding if those patients received any uh, injuries to the skin um, related to this. This is data that is just strongly uh, needed to uh, assess the safety of these devices long term. We know that you know when these devices come on the market, they are often you know studied in small uh, smaller units or they're published in white papers rather than sort of the real time very sick patients that are higher risk for these devices. And but the devices are being used in real time very sick patients now. So we really do need this data to be collected and shared with the world. Yeah, I was just actually just wondered then you know might they be used on somebody who was incontinent who which isn't an indication for catheterization. But it's actually easier and saves nursing time by using one of these devices and having to keep change the incontinence pad and risking pressure uh, by moisture associated uh, damage to the skin. So that that is one of the indications. Uh, Although one thing we do uh, encourage is that if if they are able to use, like, for example, many of these patients, when they come from home, they are managing their incontinence at home without a device that is constantly attached to them. Um, And so uh, if they're able to manage what they're able to use with at home, particularly when you have nursing care, um, we encourage that. But these do have really good uh, roles for patients who do have persistent um, incontinence, um, you know, that also that um, because of how their pattern of urination is, it's it's very hard to keep them dry, even with um, incontinence garments. And for the external catheter, sometimes they're for uh, men and women, sometimes it's useful to have it at night because it can reduce 
uh, incontinence episodes at night and, and improve, you know, uh, ideally we think it could lead to improvements um, in sleep, but not having them attached to them 24 seven um, as, you know, even in the daytime. So we think it, it certainly has its market and it certainly has its patient that it will help, but um, we want people to really think about it um, and really see, is this the best choice um, for this patient and not throw all the other strategies that we have to manage incontinence out the window because they have been used um, for years and sometimes they are still the best solution for the patient um, um, going home. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time. I've really enjoyed chatting to you again. Okay. I just remember where it was. It was Portland, Oregon, and I should remember that, but maybe oh. I sampled too much craft beer because it's famous for that, so that's maybe why I thought it was. <laughs> but certainly, um, and I'll certainly share with you what um, our, our new publications coming up. Okay. Happy to chat. But yeah, most of my focus um, this year will be focused on a lot of our work with urinary retention, and I will send you the a website that has the tools Um, on it um, involving the new tools we've developed wonderful thanks very much jennifer really appreciate your time great thank you